Hello, welcome to the D&D Roundtable presented by The Tome Show. I'm your host, James Intracasso. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Just go to thetomeshow.com, click on the links in the show notes for this episode or any other, and then shop as you normally would. We'd also like to thank our sponsor for this podcast, noblenight.com, where out of print is available again. They have D&D and other tabletop RPGs. Any edition, any product. With Noble Knight, you can even sell them your old gaming products that you aren't using anymore. Today, we're talking about parts 2 and 3 of Basic D&D. Breaking it down, chapter by chapter. If you missed us discussing part 1 of the Basic Rules, go to thetomeshow.com and check out Roundtable 26. Alright, let's meet today's panel. With me today at the roundtable are Andrew Kane. Hey there. Vegas Lancaster. Hi. And Alex Basso. Hello. That's right, we subbed Rudy for Andrew Kane. He's Rudy 2.0. Alright, so today's get-to-know-you question. What is your favorite weapon in D&D? Alex Basso, let's start with you. My favorite weapon in D&D is uh, fourth edition full blade. Uh, and this is my favorite weapon because I think out of all the D&D characters I made for fourth ed, probably about seven, seven or eight, six of them had full blades. Uh, it was statistically, I feel like it was the best weapon. <laughs> you had to take a feat for it. And I, I kind of hated myself for it because it's like, I'm going to make a new character. He's going to be melee and I'm going to give him a cool weapon. Then I look at all the weapon choices and I just, end up taking another full blade and just i i couldn't resist that high crit 1d12 plus three to hit so good such a good weapon too good plus it's a big <laughs> sword i mean come on yeah yeah you got to look like cloud from final fantasy 7 yeah. while wielding yeah yeah so pretty awesome <laughs> vegas lancaster what is your favorite weapon in DD? a little dust of dryness disguised as a pixie stick Ah. The human body is 65% water. <laughs> it's a uh, it's great weapon. Great weapon. Unless you're using it against a skeleton, then not so good. Not so good. No. Andrew Kane, what is your favorite weapon in D&D? Blowgun. <laughs> wow. Said with such confidence. Why the blowgun? One piercing damage. <laughs> I see. Nickel and Dimum. Nickel and Dimum. It's a classic David and Goliath scenario. That is exactly right. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, we got a lot to cover because we're covering parts two and three of the basic rules in our podcast tonight. So let's dig right in. We'll start with chapter seven, using ability scores. This talks to you about how to make ability checks and saving throws and skill checks using that good old classic D20. There's some interesting things in this chapter, not too much that's new from the packet. And one of the things I want to bring up, which we could have mentioned in our part one, actually, but it applies to this chapter as well, is that proficiency in this edition of D&D actually starts at plus two, whereas in the playtext packet, it started at plus one. I think that's pretty cool, gives your character an extra boost in the things that they're good at uh, and sets them apart from the things that they aren't as good at and probably makes them in maxers out there very happy i also want to point out that 
we have often debated on this show the need for both a search and perception skill. There is no longer a search skill, at least in these basic D&D rules, but there is an investigation skill, uh, which sort of makes a little more sense, but is still kind of search, and they talk about how you could use it to find a hidden object, and then they have a sidebar about finding hidden objects and how you would use the perception skill and not the investigation skill. So there is still a lot of overlap there. Anyway, I'm wondering what you guys thought about this chapter overall and what you think about the investigation skill specifically, and we will start with you, Vegas Lancaster. Uh, as someone who decried the search skill, I actually really like the the transfer of it into the uh, investigation skill. I think their description of it is uh, a lot cooler and more interesting and more distinct from perception. Uh, I think it makes sense as an intelligence slot now, and I like it a lot. Uh, I've always wanted to make a detective character, and, uh, well, this is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, and they go on to say that you could use investigation to specifically search for clues or to even use it to research, you know, you you use it as going through documents in a library and that sort of thing. So I think that it is, it is definitely a more distinct skill. Andrew Kane, what are your thoughts? Uh, I agree. I really like the idea of investigation versus search. Um, On the one level, I think it was so easy and I'm not saying you couldn't do this anymore, but it was so easy to kind of say like, I searched the room or something Whereas I feel like investigation, just even using that term, draws on something a little bit different. You might be looking for something more specifically, or you're looking for, you know, as as it says, you know, like discern what kind of weapon dealt a particular wound or something. I like the idea. I think it goes a level deeper than the idea of searching. So I really like it. Yeah, yeah, you guys are right. You're convincing me. I'm I'm warming up towards it more. Alex Basso. They both took all of my the words out of my mouth come on guys i uh, i completely agree investigation it's like search plus it's it includes search it adds more um and it kind of makes up there's no streetwise anymore and not that there was in you know next but i think it kind of fills that gap of kind of interrogating people maybe i don't know maybe that's yeah. a little bit of a stretch it gathering really information that, but yeah yeah gathering information um, and yeah, Vegas said it. I was going to say, I want to be a detective now, and especially <laughs> after watching True Detective. It's all, I'm all about cops and investigating and uh, it's going to be awesome. We can be partners. <laughs> I would. Wow. That is a great deal. Yeah, that would be sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Sleight of hand as a skill. Uh, I thought the description of it was really amusing um, they say sleight of hand is whenever you attempt an act of ledger domain or manual trickery, um, <laughs> which sounds like they pulled out the thesaurus and looked for sillier synonyms for sleight of hand. Uh, still a fun skill. I, I, I don't know. Reading the skills always makes me think about the ways you can use them in an adventure. And uh, all of these look fun. I do appreciate that they kind of break everything out, but also highlight the fact that based on how a character is constructed, the DM has the opportunity to highlight different aspects. So, you know, they use the example of a dwarf who kind of exudes strength, might do an intimidation check through a feat of strength and use a strength mod instead of the usual intimidation coming through charisma. So I like that there's also that 
opportunity to play to a character's strength so that, oh, uh-oh, you'll never be able to do that because your charisma isn't high enough or something along those lines. Yeah, I, I love that. And I, that was in the very first playtest packet. Uh, they spoke about applying different abilities and, and combining them with skills. And I love that. And in some packets, it went away. And in some, it came back. And I, I'm glad to see that that made the final cut here, even in the basic rules to tell people, depending on how creative people are getting, and if it all makes sense, you know, maybe you can apply your dexterity modifier to medicine for some reason, you know? I think that's pretty awesome. All right, guys, let's move on to Chapter 8. Uh, it's all about adventuring, and this covers a lot of your first two tiers of play, your character interaction and your exploration sort of pillars of adventuring. There was a lot of really good information in here, uh, good stuff, especially if it's your first time playing D&D, about marching order and speed and travel and if you're moving quickly, it's harder for you to make perception checks. And if you're moving more slowly, you're able to be sneaky and use stealth and that sort of thing. I really love this whole chapter. I think it's great information for the, the DM as well. They even say that sometimes you can split the party and that that's okay if you want to do that. But be aware that it's dangerous. Um, you know, rules for suffocating and vision and light and all kinds of cool stuff that we've gotten here. One of the big things that they're stressing are these exhaustion rules, which there's an appendix for in the back. They talk about different levels of exhaustion for, you know, if you're if you're not eating or if you're traveling and pushing yourself too hard and not resting and that sort of thing, your levels of exhaustion can increase. And, you know, they go from having disadvantage on checks all the way to you die of exhaustion. I thought this was really cool, a really nice mechanic, very simple and elegant. I want to hear what you guys thought about exhaustion. Alex Basso? Uh, yeah, I definitely think it's a good addition. Um, I mean, it's it's another way to kind of show, hey, there's long-term effects to you questing all day. And that's something that really hasn't been in the like, fourth day. They didn't really do any of that stuff. It's good. I like how there's six different levels of it, so... It's it really encourages you to hey take a break, you know get some rest, do something else for a while because you just can't keep going. So it's an additional and it's it's also rules that you can easily ignore if you don't like it. So it's not like it's really imposing itself on people who don't want to play with exhaustion and just want to you know normal normal rules. So I think it's a good addition. I think it's a a solid addition because I think uh, what Alex said is great, which is. Uh, it doesn't need to be used all the time or at all if you don't want that to be part of the game. But I think it adds a layer of um, opportunity when it comes to decision making. Because if you're going to be traveling in a particular way and you have to go a far distance, what you do along the way can just get a little more interesting when it comes to how exhaustion gets incorporated into the game as opposed to just kind of, all right, we traveled for five days and now we're there. There's some other interesting things that can be done with it. And I like any opportunity that should the players or the DM want to be able to incorporate that um, kind of greater nuance to the, to the role-playing aspect of the game. And I think it's very simple and easy to understand. They don't overcomplicate it. Yeah, I uh, I think it's funny that the first thing both of these guys say, uh, and me as well, is, oh, yeah, that's a cool rule. And so easy to ignore. 
Um, <laughs> and I, you know, I'd be interested to hear how other parties and campaigns play uh, with regards to uh, things like exhaustion from traveling and keeping track of whether people are eating and that sort of thing. Um, I think from my experience in general, those are things you just kind of ignore as you're playing through a campaign. And uh, I- I'm sure at-, at times it would be kind of fun to play with those exhaustion rules, whether you're doing it all the time, if you're in like a dark sun campaign, or just maybe some of the time as you're going through the Icewind Dale in Forgotten Realms or something like that. Yes, that would be my preference probably for most settings as a DM. It's not necessarily going to matter all of the time but it will matter when you are going through a desert or uh, arctic wasteland or things like that but i i think you're right there are actually a lot of rules that seem very optional here in this adventuring section Um, one of them being rests Uh, i noticed that the default long rest Well, you get all your hit points back, but you only get half of your hit dice back. You don't get all of your hit dice back during a long rest, which seems uh, interesting to me that you need to sort of rest a full two days if you've really had, you know, a hard day and used all of your hit dice to get that healing energy back. You need to rest for two days not just one what did you guys think about that you think that's going to slow down gameplay unnecessarily i think if it was me i would probably just make it ah you get all your hit dice back when you take a long rest uh i think it's interesting i think back to one of the first podcasts i was a part of talking about being new to the play test and the lethality of it being slightly higher, the stakes being higher but how that also led to an interesting dynamic in the game and i wonder if you don't always get your hit dice back, and therefore you're relying more on, well, you know, I I need to be fully healed, and so I need to expend a spell, or I have to ask, you know, adding that level of, I don't know, it's it's an, it's interesting to me, but I, I kind of would default to, I think I would prefer to just get all the hit dice back after a long rest as opposed to that full two days. But I think it adds an interesting dimension, I guess. Oh, I'm a I'm a big fan of it. I mean, I've definitely, I know I've I've stated in the past that I'd love to see like a, a module that involves like wounds and long-term effects from getting injured a lot. So this is kind of, you know, it's not a huge disadvantage, but it's definitely someone who gets beat up a lot. They're going to kind of suffer for it after, even after an extended rest. Um, And I like it because I'm just thinking about fourth edition. There've been times where I was a character, you know, I, we were questing for a while and I was completely out of healing surges and it makes you play a different way. So combat's different. It's it's a different experience when you're okay. I'm not going to run up to the front and you know if you're a melee fighter and try and engage everybody. I, I have to play this a little smarter. So it makes combat feel different. It's not always the same uh, when you're you know you're approaching it a lot more cautiously. Uh, I I think uh, I think it's interesting. I didn't uh didn't expect to see a rule like that. So it's it's kind of a neat new thing. Uh, it, maybe it would be really fun to play with exhaustion rules on and uh, half hit die healing on a long rest, um, just to make the whole process of adventuring seem a little more grueling and tasking. Because uh, that is something we kind of ignore when we play. Uh, maybe we ignore it because it, it's boring to think of ourselves <laughs> as. Uh, pathetic and weak (laughs) Um, 
but it, it maybe that would add to the uh, overall intensity and and feeling of adventure of a campaign. I what Vegas was just saying made me think it would be interesting if sometimes these I know it would get too complicated, but if sometimes these rules were based on the conditions, um, you know, so if you're going from one town to another and you have an encounter, you end up using some hit die, you know, in the immediate aftermath, but you end up in another town, you're staying in an inn, you're more comfortable, access to food, you know, you kind of accrue things more quickly. Whereas if you're on a long trek through a desert, suddenly, you know, you're, you're not getting your hit dice back as quickly. The exhaustion rules are playing a bigger role. Uh, it's just interesting how it, when I'm thinking about it, how that might apply, because you're not, you're, you know, you're staying in a camp, your rations might be low, those types of things. So I think I agree that it would, there are certain scenarios where it'd be very interesting to have all of these factors playing a role because how you choose to play your character in combat outside of it, et cetera, would be very interesting. Yeah. I think that sounds really fun and interesting, Kaner. Um, uh, you know, do your characters have, the full health and support of a, a big civilization or are they out there grueling at it on their own? Uh, and you know, the, the fantasy simulation adjusts accordingly. That sounds cool. Well, and I do believe you will see modules for gritty healing and wounds. And they've talked about modules, even for depending on your conditions, getting more hit dice if you're if you're in an inn and getting less if you're camping outside and that sort of thing. So I actually think when we get the DMG or maybe the player's handbook, you guys are going to see a lot of your ideas come to light. So I, I do agree. It's definitely going to be cool to see those options. I would love to play around with modules and have a bunch of one shots to see what works well and what doesn't. So guys, let's talk about something Probably a little less serious to many of you, but there's no more low-light vision. You only have dark vision and normal vision, and then you have your true sight and your blind sight uh, like normal. I think that has actually made some people quite upset on the forums. So I thought it was something worthy of talking about since low-light vision was something that existed in 3rd and 4th. And now elves have dark vision and, and other people. And here they explain like, that. ah, there's just dark vision. They don't mention that. Vegas, thoughts? I don't think in all the years I've ever been playing, I've ever heard a player once say, oh, this is a perfect situation for me and my low light vision. <laughs> it never happens. I often choose dark vision characters. I love drow and stuff, and I barely ever even get to use that. So if people were using low light vision all the time, they sure were doing it without me knowing about it. Well said. I feel the same exact way. Alex? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely in the people who have never used I don't think I've ever played a character with low light vision, um, so I've definitely never used it. But at the same time, like, <laughs> who, who making the rules thought, like, this needs to go? Like, low light vision is breaking the game. We got to cut this out. Like, was it really that big a deal? Couldn't, couldn't they just keep it in, keep everyone happy? <laughs> well, I think it was more in the attempt to simplify the rules. They thought, why do we have all these different types of vision when, as Vegas pointed out, maybe it, it doesn't matter. They're trying to keep things a little simpler. I love, though, I just want to throw this out there. I love that you have made seven characters who use full blades 
and have never made a PC with low light vision. It's like six of them were human. Uh... (laughs) Andrew Kane, thoughts on this subject? I'm so angry about it, I can't even comment. Oh. No, I'm just kidding. I I agree. I mean, it's a funny thing because I agree with Vegas, which is I've never thought, I can't even think of a scenario, like you said, where you kind of are like, oh man, this is clutch. But I also agree that of all the things that they could keep in or take out did that really matter that much but i guess in the grand scheme of things it didn't so sorry low light vision i don't i don't know if you're really a thing anyway so <laughs> maybe it'll be a, it'll be a rules module maybe <laughs> easy to house rule at the very least if people still want it well, i mean i think they covered a little bit when they talk about different types of light bright light dim light darkness so I want to talk about the interaction portion of this. I thought there was some really great advice about role-playing and social interaction and how to sort of adjudicate the encounters for DMs. And I also thought there was some really interesting advice about how your character could spend downtime. These are just a few of the things that will be probably within the core rule books. The player's handbook is probably going to have a ton of stuff they've talked about making magic items and going on crime sprees and all sorts of downtime activities that you can have fun with. Uh, Here we have a a nice handful of them. You know, they sort of had the basics covered. You're not building a castle, but you've got training and researching and crafting and practicing a profession and recuperating. So that's really cool to me. What did you guys think of these downtime activities and the role-playing advice? And Alex Basso, I know you've got something to say about crafting i don't like crafting or at least i don't like their example of crafting which is uh 300 days to make a suit of plate armor i mean i'm not blacksmith but that is a long time to make some armor uh and then i mean the benefits yeah it saves you some money i don't know crafting just it it disappointed me and obviously there's no there's no talk of magical crafting i doubt you'll be able to do that without rare magical items are but i can't see myself really making anyone who crafts or even thinks about crafting but i do like training training is cool and it's a great way to spend your money because that's going to be an issue uh compared to the last couple editions if you don't know what to do with your money so training cool give yourself some languages i'll finally have a character with more than one language who speaks more than basic or common i can't believe which one is it again in this sorry common common okay let's let's make me sound smarter common probably have a character who will speak more than common uh and maybe even specialize in some skills that's gonna be exciting well i believe humans get a bonus language off the bat so you can take your full blade proficiency well i I take common times too (laughs) double common uh andrew kane what are your thoughts I think it, I think it's cool. I like the idea of um, downtime activities. I think the tough thing here is they're trying to find the balance between if you could make your own armor in a week, like and save half the gold pieces, you're going to do it all the time. So they have to have a longer time on there. But I'm also thinking like 250 days to learn a new language or a set of tools uh, is. Have we ever had that much downtime? I guess I'm just, you know, and I guess you could break it up. But I think it's them finding the balance between making sure it's long enough that you can't just do it any t- all the time, but also it's not too long that you're kind of like, okay, well, we're going to have to sit out a year while I learn, uh, <laughs> you know, Dwarven is, it's, I think it's, it's interesting. I'm very intrigued by it. And I'm obviously most excited about recuperating. 
but um, of, <laughs> overall, I think it's I think it's a, a cool addition. Um, I really liked the role playing advice overall that they're giving. Um, you know, speaking to different people and their personalities. Some people will want to do the voices and all that, and I I'm not one who really does that, but I love it when I play with other people who do. So I thought it was some good solid advice about the role playing piece. Well, as far as uh, long spans of time goes, uh, I believe part of the design philosophy of Next, um, maybe not the overall design philosophy, but one thing they were looking at accomplishing was providing more uh, long breaks between short adventures uh, for the adventurers with the idea that uh, adventurers going out on one big fight after another day after day is unrealistic so i think they're looking at um uh the the timelines of campaigns in a different way now and and this is part of that um as far as 300 days to craft a suit of armor goes i consulted a local expert my girlfriend who employs a blacksmith for reasons i'm gonna leave mysterious right now uh, and she says a suit of armor should take no longer than a fortnight, which is the word she used in case this podcast wasn't nerdy enough already. Uh, I, I think you are right. They did want to build in sections of downtime, although I would dispute your claim of it to make things more realistic when dragons is in the title of the game. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just me that's just me and i do think it does make sense and some people like to take a story that plays out over a longer period of time or if you're playing a dungeon of the week sort of style campaign maybe you don't have the urgency within your story arcs that some other campaigns are used to having uh, it's going to be interesting to see i'm actually excited about these downtime activities quite a bit and i want to see people use them and 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 play with them so i'm going to try to provide breaks between quests but i need to craft a story that makes sense with that you know let's hear a word from our sponsor noblenight.com hello hello citizens oh thank goodness Adventurers, we need a noble knight. Perhaps you can slay the beast of retail and reap the promises of riches. Riches? Yes! Great prices, out-of-print games, the latest releases, and a magic box that converts all of your old loot into cash or new loot. But why? Fantastic! I'll do it! Yes, well... You see, the beast he kidnapped the mayor and can only be slain by the most noble of knights. Yes, yes, yes. I said I'll do it. Yes, the thing is, I was talking to her. What? Fear not, kind citizen. The noble knight will save the day, rescue the lord in distress, and liberate all that loot in a way only possible at Noble Knight. If you'd like to get your hands on Noble Knight's loot, head over to thetomeshow.com and click on the link in the show notes for this episode. And don't forget to tell them that the Tome Show sent you. Ha! I got to do something to help out. All right, guys. Let's talk about combat. This is the big, meaty section that I know Alex Basso has been waiting to sink his teeth into. A lot of it is similar to the last playtest packet, but there are a few gems of difference within there that I definitely want to talk about. 
Let's talk first about bonus actions. Right there on the first page of the combat chapter, they talk about uh, bonus actions are things like the rogue's cunning action feature, or there are certain spells that can be cast as bonus actions, or when you attack with two weapons, that second attack is a bonus action. And they go on to say you can only take one bonus action on your turn, so you have to choose So if you're a two-weapon fighting cleric rogue, you can only use healing word. You can't use healing word and your cunning action and your second attack. Um, I think that's pretty good. It's a good way to, to moderate the game. What do you guys think, Alex Basso? The restriction on bonus actions definitely, uh, I feel like, not as important right now, but I could see maybe multi-classing in the future. With, I, I don't know, I mean, we don't know how specifically that'll work, but maybe there'll be, you know, ways to take... Uh, actions that'll give you uh, multiple bonus actions or just somebody it prevents uh, a spellcaster from going off and doing like 15 healing words on one turn so restricting you know to only one spell only one special ability is definitely just a big balance thing that's really important and uh, prevents a lot of like easy ways to break the game Uh, i don't have much to add to that i think it's key to balance i mean if if you know how to manipulate the game you could you know do 10 things at once, uh, you know, and so I think it, it, it makes sense that it allows you to bring together interesting opportunities to do bonus actions, but then the idea of having to choose, I really like, because depending on what you're doing in combat, a uh, different bonus action might make more sense, and I like that you have to make that choice uh, as opposed to, oh, I'll just do everything, and maybe something will stick. For me, the the fine balance they need to strike isn't just maintaining uh, power between classes or keeping characters from uh, becoming overpowered by getting too many actions on a turn. The uh, balance they need to strike is managing the duration combat takes in real time. Uh, I think limiting the amount of stuff you can do on a turn um, really can speed up combat a lot, which is good, good, good. Uh, there's another um, uh, piece on taking actions a little further down in the chapter that talks about little things you can do on your turn, like pick up an axe or draw a sword or open a door that doesn't take an action. Uh, and I think it's very good that they point out that stuff because it's boring to spend a turn doing stuff like that. Exactly, exactly. I love the action economy, if you will, uh, in 5th edition, and it seems like it's going to keep the game running really smooth, and a lot of it depends on your DM adjudicating things, right? So if somebody's like, oh, well, I'm going to pick up this and draw this and do that, you know, he can say like, well, it's too much, too many things that you're doing for free there, uh, which I, I think is also really nice. Let's talk about how they throw in this variant of playing with a grid, not wholly unfamiliar to those who played 3.5 and 4th for sure. I really like that when you move diagonal, it's still one square of movement. I love to see that. I thought that made 4th so much easier. I also want to talk about some of the special actions you can do. Uh, It looks like charge was taken out of the basic rules, and it looks like the help action is easier. You no longer need to hit a a DC of 10 or anything like that. You just, when you decide to aid another person, you do it, and you grant them advantage because you're giving up your turn, and that's how it works, which I also think is a, a nice way of doing things. So even when you're in a situation where you feel like you can't do something, you can help someone else make their attack or perform form some sort of task, which is great. 
How do you guys feel about all of this stuff? No charge. No charge, Alex Basso. I mean, no charge right now. It's too advanced for these basic rules. <laughs> they'd be crazy to take that out of the game. So we'll see it soon, right? The charges, yeah. I mean, I like charge. It's important. So I can't imagine they removed it. Uh, I really like help. As uh, Vegas was just saying before, it's boring to uh, spend your turn opening a door. It's even more boring to spend your turn doing something and failing miserably uh, to try and aid someone. So it gives your, your turn more, more meaning. You always, you always accomplish something with help. Uh, so I like that a lot. Um, and then the other actions, I mean, there's nothing nothing too crazy that really caught my eye as, as great. Uh, a dodge is still in, which is one one thing that I thought was really, really useful. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my favorite actions, for sure, in, in the new editions. Um, it's just, you know, if you're in a, in a tough spot, you can actively try and defend. And that's really cool. Well, Andrew Kane, how do you feel? No charge. But grid combat as a variant with uh, weird diagonal movement that doesn't make sense, but does make sense, <laughs> if you get what I'm saying. I do, because I love grid variant combat, uh, so I'm all for that. I uh, don't really care about the charge, because I never play a character that would ever choose to charge, um, unless no, it would just dash or run or whatever it's called now. But um, yeah, no, so sorry, Alex. I don't really give a rat's about no charge. Sorry you play boring characters. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Vegas, settle this debate for us, please. Uh, I love the feeling of charging into combat in the first round of combat, and I, I'm sad to see no no charge rule. Um, I, think, uh, I think the charge uh, might have been a little overpowered uh, now that I'm thinking back on it. Maybe they took it out because they wanted to fiddle with it a little before PHB came out. Or they might want to leave charge to be barbarian exclusive or something like that uh, might be what they're doing. Ah, I see. Then Alex Basso will always play a human full-bladed barbarian. <laughs> Something I've played in the past. Who wears a horn Frequently helmet. charged. <laughs> so it actually, that would make sense to keep it for barbarian. <laughs> also in looking in here, we got some new rules for mounted combat and underwater combat, which I think is pretty uh, cool to see. I was definitely excited to check out the rules about mounted combat. Seem pretty simple and straightforward. Also excited to see the rules for underwater combat are not super complex. Um, I think that's great. I I love to check out stuff like that. How do you guys feel about these new mounted combat and underwater rules, Andrew Kane? Mounted combat, I'm going to, since I'm Rudy Basso 2.0, I'm going to say I'm very excited about mounted combat because I feel like Rudy would be happy with uh, all that business. Uh, with his always wanting to charge, um, into, see, charge, mounted combat, all of these things come together. Um, no, I like, I think the rules make sense. Um, I like, I like the idea, and I think um, it's good to have updated and easy to use rules in this way because I think sometimes it's easy to forget that that's an option, particularly if you're in a dungeon or an enclosed space. Uh, I'm particularly excited about my underwater combat for my, um, trident-wielding tiefling from Glacius who hunts uh, icebreaker sharks in the exciting world of Exploration Age. Woo! Sweet. (laughs) Sweet buzz marketing right there. (laughs) Shameless plug. 
Um, no, I like I I think both of these both the mechanics make a lot of sense. They're easy to understand, and it adds an interesting. I keep saying this, but adds an interesting dynamic to that aspect of the game. And I think you probably will see more complicated modules for these if that's what people want. I mean, underwater combat. Just I mean, has there been a lot of rules for that in the past? I, I feel like I haven't. There, there are usually rules for that. Yeah, I guess there usually are. It's just something I've never. I don't think I've ever we've ever done. But I'd love to spend. I guess a little bit of time underwater. <laughs> I probably end up hating it. But uh, it, one thing I noticed is now I finally see a reason for a trident, which I had pegged as the worst weapon in the game. Uh, just There's just always a, a something out there. So now, yeah, trident running a shark. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> let's do it. I think they should have in underwater combat. They should have a note: see rules on suffocation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Vegas, what are your thoughts on these new rules? Uh, they're nice and simple, which is probably the best thing they can go they can do with it. Um, since they're not things that are going to come up very often, uh, it, it's nice that they're very easy to use when they do come up. Uh, doesn't seem like there's any real advantage to using a mount, except that it's cool. And it, you share the mount's speed, so you gain uh, a speed advantage. You would be faster than you normally are. That makes combat. sense. So that's, I mean, that's pretty cool. All right, guys. Part three, the rules of magic. Chapter 10, spellcasting. Again, a lot of this looks pretty straightforward from what we saw in the last playtest packet. There were some things that I thought were interesting, one being the rules for concentration. Now, if you take damage while casting a spell that requires concentration, you have to make a constitution saving throw. And if you fail that con saving throw, you lose the spell. That seemed interesting to me. I saw that that was not in earlier playtest packets, and I was like, oh, that's kind of cool, so you get to hold on to that. But now it does make this get the wizard game very interesting if they're casting stone skin on a big fighter or something like that. What do you guys think of this uh, concentration mechanic, particularly the taking damage thing? Vegas, let's start with you. Uh, it's kind of neat. It It's one of those things that, differentiates uh spellcasters from other classes which um fourth ed uh you know the big complaint or my biggest complaint is that it did a pitiful job doing that <laughs> uh uh i i love the whole spell system in the new edition which is mostly the spell system from older editions mm -hmm. uh but yeah i i think that's cool um i haven't played with the new rules enough to know what the balance of uh, spellcasters to non-spellcasters is. I would assume that if you can break uh, a spell by interrupting a spellcaster's concentration, then presumably that spell is a lot more powerful than a regular um, sword-swinging action. Mm -hmm. So I would hope that's true um, for a spell that requires concentration. Alex Basso, thoughts? I hate it. I hate it. <laughs> uh, nobody's nobody's supposed to shocked. <laughs> why? Uh, uh, actually, I, I mean, I like concentration. I don't get why they added in the uh, this con check. It's ridiculous. It's you. It's either a ten or you have to make a check on whatever damage you took if it's higher than a ten. Which is like you're going to be failing that so easily. 
concentration, I felt like, was already a great way to balance wizards. Wizards, you know, constantly it prevents them from casting all their, you know, their best like buff spells or or long term spells. And I felt like it was just a good way in how they had it already. But adding in this extra extra way to take take away concentration, I think, really can kind of screw them over. So it heavily punishes a wizard who has a concentration spell and is, you know, just targeted. They have to position perfectly. I think it's a little too harsh. The numbers on it, I, I feel like you're going to be failing. Anytime you're hit, you're going to be failing that throw. It's just too too high. Andrew Kane, can you break the tie here? I can't. I don't know if I can. Uh, I'm torn as a frequent spellcaster. Um, I think it adds an interesting a choice one has to make. You know, am I going to cast this spell if there's the opportunity that if I need to maintain my concentration, I could, you know, the bonus that I'm getting, someone else is getting, whatever you're doing is lost. So I get it, but it is, I, I kind of, I'm kind of leaning Alex's way where um, I'm intrigued by it, but I, I have some serious concerns. You know, it could be, it could lead to kind of the spellcaster always being immediately targeted and uh, just that, that wouldn't be any fun. What about for enemies? So, for instance, you, you know, it sort of makes combat into a little bit more of a puzzle and adds this layer of like, okay, if we can take out the spellcaster, then all of the golems will be easier to defeat, you know? That's true. Um, that's a good point. I mean, I, I never really thought about it on the flip side because I was mostly thinking about everyone attacking my character. <laughs> um, no, I mean, that's it. It could make it more of a, a chess uh, a chess match. You know, I would probably, again, as a frequent spellcaster, I would probably definitely think much more about where my character was placed um, as opposed to uh, kind of before I, I would just be wherever I was and start doing my thing. Um, so it, it, it would definitely add a interesting wrinkle to combat if that, uh, you know, with that piece of, with that rule in place. And I guess what I was really hoping for was just reading the past editions. They mentioned that, uh, you know, there might be some effects that can knock a caster out of concentration. And I wish that was implemented instead of just damage. I wish there was more of a specialized attack to disrupt uh, instead of just making it whenever whenever a wizard takes damage, they have to make that throw. I just think it makes it too easy to knock a wizard out of concentration. And, I mean, concentration spells, they're all pretty much, like, really cool not just important spells but like cool spells and it's just i can't when i cast like fly and i'm flying 50 feet in the air and someone shoots me like not only will i be really disappointed and then i'll fall to my death but it's just like i don't like it i think it's cool uh i bet there's gonna be feats that increase your ability to concentrate right now it just makes me think if i'm making a wizard like con has to be my my secondary stat or else I'm, I'm going to have some trouble. Sure, but if you're playing a character who's an evoker, say, shoots a lot of fire, has you don't have as many concentration spells. So maybe it's not important to you. That's true. But, I mean, there are, there are a lot of concentration spells, and that's disappointing to play a wizard and just to completely cut all of that out. Let's move on, shall we? <laughs> you don't want to talk about spell components? <laughs> Do you want to talk about spell components? Yeah, I think they're cool. <laughs> Why, do you, <laughs> Why do you think spell components are cool, Vegas? Uh, they're another piece of the magic system that I think was missing from 4th edition. Uh, spells can have verbal components, somatic, meaning moving your hands about, 
or material components. And I think all of those are cool um, because it, it's neat to me. Uh, the the thing that that's most neat about that is just imagining um, kind of the lore of the world you're in. Uh, so if you capture a, a an enemy wizard, you've got to bound his hands and gag him to make sure he can't cast any spells. I just think that's neat. Sure, and it's neat that your material components can be replaced with a spellcasting focus like a wand or if you're a druid, a twig of holly. So that maybe you're not carrying bat guano and sulfur around for every time <laughs> you want to cast a fireball, but you have this staff that you cast through, you know, which is also pretty cool. I like like that a lot i think it's cool too (laughs) (laughs) all right i mean i just i just love the idea though of grappling a wizard to like prevent him from casting a fireball spell because he can't move his arms yeah but then he casts a a spell that that's verbal oh so cool yeah yeah that's true but you're 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 limiting though like you you say you're scared of a certain spell particularly you can try and yeah it's also it makes me want to read fantasy books stuff your Mouth or hand in his mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on to chapter 11, spells. Let's talk quickly about your favorite spells and your least favorite. There's a whole list here. I'm going to throw this out there. My favorite spell, level six wizard spell, Otto's Irresistible Dance. Glad to see it's back. Glad to see it's making people dance and glad to see it's as powerful as Disintegrate and Chain Lightning. All right, guys. (laughs) What are your favorite and or least favorite spells, Vegas Lancaster? Oh, my, uh, I I think my favorite spell is a a little cantrip called Thaumaturgy, uh, which probably isn't how you pronounce that. That's okay. Uh, It it turns you into Gandalf the Grey. You can make your (laughs) voice real big or have thunder boom in the background. And it's just a little basic spell to make you feel powerful. Yeah, it's super fun. It sort of reminds me of Merlin, you know, the the things that Merlin would do when Arthur was a young lad to impress him and and intimidate him. Pretty cool stuff. How about you, Andrew Kane? Prestidigitation. Uh Best spell. (laughs) Of a similar ilk, I would say. (laughs) Yeah, just on the the wizarding side. I like the idea of creating a shower of sparks or a puff of wind um, or instantaneously cleaning or soiling an object no longer than one cubic foot Uh, (laughs) or maybe creating a non-magical trinket uh, that can fit my hand and that lasts until the end of my next turn. All of these things are glorious to me. And I love them. (laughs) Agreed. Again, very reminiscent (laughs) of things fantasy wizards should definitely be able to do. Absolutely. And fun that it can be done at will. Alex Basso, your favorite spell. Uh, I think I pretty much gave away already what my favorite spell was before. It's fly. I just (laughs) love flying. I want to (laughs) fly. So, come on. That's awesome. And uh, least favorite, it's going to be Mage Hand. Just because... Rudy, his first character, <laughs> fourth edition, one to thirty, it he would never stop using Mage Hand. <laughs> never stop using Mage Hand. And I think it has ruined that spell for me. <laughs> That's true. Like like a good Dane cook joke. It was played out by someone else. <laughs> All right, guys. Where can people find you, Vegas Lancaster? At Vegas Lancaster on Twitter.com. And also with the N crowd, uh, doing 
improv comedy every Friday night in Philadelphia. Our website is phillyncrowd.com. And Andrew Kane, where can folks find you? I can be found at Cavalier Kane on Twitter. That's Cavalier with a K, K A V A L I E R K A N E. Always a good time. Excellent. And Alex Basso, where can people find you? Still not available. <laughs> Maybe one day, but not today. <laughs> Guys, if you have a question or comment you'd like to see us discuss on the roundtable, reach out to me on Twitter at James Intercasso at J A M E S. I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Or leave us a comment on the Tome Show's website, thetomeshow.com. Or you can reach out to Vegas or Andrew in the ways that they have expressed you may reach out to them. And a quick shameless plug, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age. It's the 5th edition world that I am building. It's at worldbuilderblog.me. Okay, everyone, thanks for listening, and thanks to Andrew, Alex, and Vegas. Also, many thanks to Jeff Greiner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup. Our theme music, which you're listening to right now, was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or DD Classics to help support the show. Keep on rolling and keep on listening to The Round Table.